0: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Make Language Great Again. Today it is my joy and pleasure to welcome Justin Hans. Justin is a writer who writes about microeconomics, banking and finance. In the past, he has worked for financial institutions as a business analyst building risk management tools. In the process, he realized that he wanted to dig deeper into the big picture of microeconomics. And here we go. Welcome, Justin. I'm very happy to talk to you today. Thank you. Do you want to talk about yourself a little bit?
1: What is your story? Sure. I'm 43 right now. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Lived in Phoenix, Arizona for a few years for college. Went to college for IT. uh, That was during the dot-com boom, so I had some good years in there before it crashed. (laughs) Moved to Florida in 2001. I have two daughters, uh, age 10 and 12 right now, and I mostly work in tech jobs, quality assurance, database stuff, business analysis. So i worked with a lot of data, and uh, sometimes that was risk data or money-related Related data, and mostly I'm—I try to be really open-minded. I don't like dogma and uh, people who have super strict views on things. I try to be analytical. And I'm, you know, kind of wasn't intentionally moving out of the tech world. It just seemed like I didn't fit in the tech world at some point. And that is a problem, at least in America today. Once people are over age 35 or 40, it just kind of seems like you'd start getting shooed out the door. <laughs> uh, you know, they want they want people who are younger that they can get away with paying less. Uh, they don't want to, they don't want someone with 15 or 20 years experience that they have to pay a lot. Nonetheless, I took my skills at finding root causes and I've tried to apply them to sort of the societal and financial problems that we're seeing in the world today and uh, wanted to start addressing that through writing. And I really found a passion for writing. I think this would have actually been maybe around 2009 to 2012 or 13. Some site that I had come up with got used as a reference quite a bit. And I, I had a developed passion for writing. And so now with the pandemic, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do the thing I really like, which is writing and use the way my brain works and dig more into this because I had studied quite a bit about banking and, and uh, macroeconomics and stuff, but I never sat down and put pen to paper to flesh things out.
0: Was there any particular event that forced you to look deeper or was it just a long natural process? And
1: No, uh, when I was in high school, college, etc., I didn't really care about uh, anything to do with with uh, money or Economics. In 2008, when the uh, financial crisis happened, the housing crisis, and so forth, that was at a time when my first daughter was born. My uh, wife at the time and I were looking to buy a house. The houses prices were going crazy. And that made me curious about things. Then also so many people got hurt financially that bought into this bubble. And so everybody was kind of learning about what a bubble was at that time. If they didn't already know, we were getting a lesson. Friends of mine lost houses and stuff over the next year. People living in houses for a year for not paying anything. It was just crazy. And I at the time, thankfully was okay. I had uh, a good job that I had been at for five or six years at that point with good pay. i still had health insurance for my kids and wife and everything. So everything was stable for me. But then you see these people getting messed up all around you. I had some concerns. And so the money that I did have, I didn't have a ton of investments at the time, but I yanked them out of the market. So I ended up only losing like a thousand dollars and I was like, OK, maybe maybe I should look into this because I know people who lost a lot, especially people who were retiring at the time. And something wasn't right with money. It wasn't right with the way the cost of living was going up, how things go up unevenly. I would notice tech gets cheaper, but groceries get more expensive and houses went through the roof. So I started looking in, into economics. Detail level of that stuff was quite boring. And so that's one reason why I look into macro now. But I knew that after I started digging into economics, I says, OK, there's not, not really any solid answers here in these economic premises, just buying and selling and supply and demand. But I realized that, okay, the problem has to do with the monetary system itself. And it, it surprisingly takes quite a lot of digging and, and reading and under, to understand how money and banking work. It is intentionally an obfuscated thing. So I changed to, uh, my focus to banking and, and the currency system primarily and macroeconomics. I really had a passion for understanding it for some reason, which was kind of crazy. Now, again, this is back in after 2008. And so since then, I've spent just a lot of years of personal study trying to understand as much as I could. Um, You know, I don't have a degree in it and I don't want a degree in it. Uh, I hear economics professors and, and other economists say a lot of them, now that they've moved to a more heterodox position, they feel like they've had to unlearn everything they've learned in school with their, you know, with their PhDs. And so I'm glad I don't have to unlearn that. I could sort of start fresh with the way my brain already was. Spent several years now, it's probably been seven or eight years, just doing everything I could to learn about banking and, and central banks and the money system. And that is definitely where many of uh, societal problems come from.
0: If you were to guide somebody who has never thought about it or read about it into some direction, is there a section on your website where they can find it or what kind of resources you would recommend as the first like first step to start digging?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, one thing I would research. I, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd call it any specific books. Maybe *The Creature from Jekyll Island*. That book uh, discusses the story of the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1912 and 1913, and that sort of starts to get. Get a handle on central banking, but then you get sort of this weird intersection of politics where you have Keynesian economics, you have Austrian economics. And I would make sure that you sort of learn about both, and then you can sort of figure out whatever blend starts to make sense. So uh, understanding where the Federal Reserve came from and uh, the history of the United States, what we had basically central banks before that. We had two central banks in the United States, they just weren't called the Fed. And what essentially happened is in this exchange is that the government agreed to to let the bankers create the money and be a separate institution. And what that effectively did is it made the government always beholden to the bankers because the bankers, like the big, you know, Citibank Chase, all those guys, uh, they collectively own the Fed. They have shares in the Fed as if it were a company. The Fed is not officially a government entity. It's sort of quasi-governmental. And so I would learn about the Fed, learn about Austrian and and Keynesian economics, and if you're really trying to understand the economy, I would actually learn about the monetary system and macroeconomics. And then that will sort of start filling in all the blanks for everything else.
0: Thank you. And now the way we encountered each other is through writing and reading and researching The Great Reset. How did it come onto your radar? When did you start thinking about it?
1: Well, <clears throat> I remember hearing about it probably three or four years ago, and um, I I didn't do anything about it at the time, and I wasn't uh, writing about that, this you know anything like this back then either. And now we know the Great Reset is it's really sort of this umbrella term, this big overarching thing from the World Economic Forum. And um, in the last five months or so, I ended up coming across that uh, article on Forbes, the version on Forbes of the World Economic Forum's article that's called Welcome to 2030. You know, I own nothing and I've never been happier or something right. like that. I would encourage people to to read that. If you just type in Forbes Welcome to 30 in a search engine, you'll find that. And then I also came across the uh, Eight Predictions slideshow video that I believe is still on their Facebook page for the World Economic Forum. And, you know, you've seen those. They, they kind of scandalize people and it's it's kind of amazing that they exist. Um, you know, they talk about uh, everyone living in a smart city and no one owning anything. And and it's a sort of this sharing economy and even your clothes that you don't own. And of course, you know, the, the gut reaction most, most people have is that, well, that would be socialism, <laughs> but they're making it sound like it's some future utopia. Nonetheless, I really started digging into that and I wanted to understand the, you know, the, the economics and everything behind it, obviously, because it's basically, they're calling for a reset of capitalism. So we're talking about trying to revamp an entire economic system. And so it's, the, the money has to have something to do with it. And if people do want to learn more about it, what you really want to look into is the fourth industrial revolution. That is another term coined by Klaus Schwab, who's the the founder of the World Economic Forum. And that is really where the meat of it is. If you go to the World Economic Forum website, I believe it's weforum.com, and you make a login, a free login account for the strategic intelligence section of their website, that lays out all sorts of topics, all sorts of countries, all sorts of articles of which businesses are partnering with which governments and 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 doing all these things. And now we're seeing world leaders on board, which is makes it a little scary. And people in Davos, a lot of times they would talk about all sorts of world-changing things and then none, none of it would happen. And so now it's a little terrifying because it actually seems to be moving forward.
0: I hear you. I had very similar observations because usually, as you said, Davos or even the United Nations, they get together, they talk, they produce all those vast documents documents and then nothing happens but it looks like this time around things are actually moving so as far as the monetary and currency and banking aspects of it can you please uh, talk more about how it plays into this whole great reset
1: sure well you know that's not a hundred percent known obviously and um and as we're, we're talking future stuff here what my best guess would be based on what i do know what we're seeing right now in in the u.s at least with and we're actually seeing it happen in other countries too the uk was telling their banks to make sure that they're prepared for negative interest rates in germany and a few other european countries and in japan years ago they already moved to negative interest rates so this is the central bank declaring what the the rate is which is basically the cost of borrowing money for banks uh, to have their reserves so negative interest rates are probably no good <laughs> but that's one of the pieces and in the u.s dollar is always worth a dollar uh because it says it's a dollar but we know uh through the amount of money that's been created and the amount of velocity and so forth, that over time, that dollar that we have in our in our wallet is really worth something more like 95, been really devalued 95 to 98% or something, which is why everything appears to cost so much. But rather than go too far down that, basically what they're doing is the the Fed mentioned uh, there was an article that they were working with MIT and they are working with Accenture for the digital dollar project. And uh, there's a few other coalition of people working on digitizing the U.S. dollar. And um, the International Monetary Fund had a document back from 2015 called Breaking the Zero Lower Bound or Breaking Through the Zero Lower Bound. And that was talking about taking interest rates negative. And the, the idea at the time was you convert the physical currency to a digital currency. And in doing so, you remove the, the biggest barrier to effectively having negative rates that can apply quickly. So if they try to stimulate interest, they might say, OK, the interest rate is going to go down 0.25%. They won't really see that change for another year, year and a half. And that drives the, the central banks nuts. They don't have the level of control they want. So if they move to a digital currency and they phase out physical currency, they it would basically be like we would be connected directly to central bank. So they want to issue what's called a central bank digital currency, and they can use that to take rates negative very easily because... Yeah, in in my theory, at least, what would happen is the dollar in your wallet would become 98 cents by the end of the week or the end of the month. And it may not play out exactly like that, but some equivalent of that will happen. They're going to transition away from physical cash. They laid out a plan for doing that at the IMF in 2015. And even though that was just sort of a this is how you might do it type of plan, if you read through those, you go, "Okay, well, we already did items one through seven on the list and number eight or whatever is in progress, Ten already happened. You look at it and go, okay, they're, they're already doing this. And we do know they're working on a digital currency. We do know that countries are moving toward negative interest rates. And that is ultimately going to tie into the idea of needing a digital identity. And so this is where it starts to connect to the whole Great Reset and the fourth industrial revolution. That's, that's all about inclusion, connectivity, people, everybody being plugged in and connected. And that uh, we're seeing now the digital health passports, Um, that that are starting to become a reality. So they know who's been vaccinated, who hasn't, or who might be immune. And they wanna tie that to a digital identity. Microsoft's already been working with many organizations Uh, with something called ID 2020. And that's only one of those sort of things that are happening. So you've got a digital ID, you'll have a digital currency, your health records will be digitized and associated with that. And, you know, I wouldn't doubt if that becomes that's how you get on the internet is you prove who you are. And that's how you spend money is, you know, you have a digital wallet that's tied to your ID and so forth. So it's, uh, it it all kind of starts to bunch together. And I think what Will probably happen is right now, I think the, the International Monetary Fund, which was started by the United States, but but is sort of, we juggle like who's president and so forth with other countries every couple of years. They're going to want to have a one world currency. And in some ways we have that with the dollar today, but not quite. But if they have their way, they had a proposal back in uh, the mid-1940s when the U.S. dollar sort of became paramount. Their initial plan that didn't get accepted um, at the Bretton Woods Convention, was to go with um, something called a Bancor, which uh, John Maynard Keynes wanted to do. That would be a a global currency so that no individual country would have this right to sort of print money in an unlimited fashion because it would result in what we're actually seeing today, where America sort of has this undue level of control over things. So I kind of went in a lot of different directions there, (laughs) but that's how it all sort of ties together economically and, and financially and with the, with the great resets. This is
0: a great high-level overview. I have a few questions. Let's just focus on the negative rate. So, in simple words, how would negative rate impact a regular citizen? So, if the goal is to introduce negative rates, so what is the what is the relationship?
1: Well, what first, we, we need to just in general understand what the interest rate is when we're talking about it. It's called the federal funds rate, and that is one of the small amount of tools that that the central bank has, which is the Federal Reserve in the United States. So they'll say if they want the economy to to heat up or do better, to grow, to have inflation, these are the things they typically aim for. What they'll do is uh, if, like, if the rate were 4%, they might say, we're going to make it 3% or 3.5%. They would take the rate down because that is the basis. That whatever the interest rate is, is the basis for all lending. And so that would mean if you are about to go get a car loan, that three and a half percent is being taken into account somewhere. And since it was just 4% in that scenario, that means that now it's cheaper to borrow money. More people borrow. The borrowing stimulates economic activity. And so that's how they boost the economy. And that also causes inflation, but they want some level of inflation um, in the PCE index. And so that's what the interest rate is. The problem is they've done so much to try to stimulate the economy since the the great uh, financial crisis in 2008 that rates are already back down to zero. And so they don't have anywhere to go. They don't have any lower to make them. And they've already had billions and billions of dollars in what they call open market operations, which is where the the Fed purchases these uh, bonds and and other vehicles, mortgage-backed securities bundled together and so forth. That's all still happening, unfortunately. And so basically, you can't take the rates any lower if you're the Fed. It's already zero. We've seen other countries go below zero with limited success. And I think that's because of the time it takes to filter down to the economy. If they move to the digital currency with the negative rate then it'll be more immediate so negative rates it's still a rate going down so the idea is it would still serve to stimulate more potential lending the problem is that the commercial banks don't have to comply with that they might say well we still think it's a high-risk environment so we don't want to lend except for the most credit-worthy people and so then they get frustrated because then it still doesn't stimulate the economy moving to a cbdc the central bank digital currency actually starts to bypass the banks because regular citizens would have accounts directly with the Fed. So it's hard to talk about negative rates without the digital currency aspect because um, banks are kind of in the way, (laughs) according to the, the central bank. So there's a great concern over what they call disintermediation, which is the process of bypassing the banks and them sort of becoming futile in existence. What a negative rate would do is it would mean that it costs money to have money is essentially what it is. You know, like if you, you think back to when there were actually positive interest rates and let's say the interest rate was five percent and you had a savings account, then you could get some percentage of money back just for saving your money. A negative rate would mean that you're paying for the privilege of holding money.
0: In terms of strict lending, for example, if you're a bank and I'm a company and I want to borrow a hundred dollars and the rate is minus one percent, but then it essentially would mean that when I pay you back, I would pay you ninety nine dollars and you will be good legally?
1: No, because there's always a margin so you know when when the fed's rate if the Fed makes the rate negative 0.5 or something which is probably the you know the first step they would do is a small amount r- right like you remember you've heard of things like the prime rate and the LIBOR rate those are sort of these margins that are added so you might get a credit card deal and maybe the federal interest rate is you know X percent and then the prime rate is you know five percent so they add that to the rate or, or whatever so there's always a margin so what negative rates will do is it will make banking lending much less profitable for banks because they won't get paid as much interest. But what they would in, in turn do to make up for it to have a viable business model, they would go, okay, the Fed's saying the rate is negative 0.5 or negative one. So we're going to add a margin of 5% instead of 4%. So your mortgage would still be 3%. They would never lend it to a consumer at a negative rate because they would just be absolutely guaranteed to lose money. Well, right. They're always going to place padding in there to make sure that they can make a profit. But at some point you have their, their sort of whole process getting messed up with with how they normally do business. And so that's why there's concern that banks in the commercial sense might go away and might just become branches of the Fed. It's a little scary.
0: Very scary, obviously, for monopolistic reasons, because when one source controls everything, it never ends good for the human beings. Do you see that on the level of individual banks? Are there objections because that messes up their business? And I'm not worried about the top, top people of any bank, because I'm sure they're well off, but anywhere below that. Is there a discussion that you're observing or any kind of resistance or pushback?
1: Well, banks definitely aren't crazy about the idea of negative rates. The big ones will find ways to be fine, unfortunately. And just as today we have community banks, small banks, for years there's been a shift that small banks end up only working with and helping customers that don't have tremendously high worth, as well as smaller businesses that they lend to. So small banks do do business with small business And big banks do big business with big businesses. And that's true in Germany and other parts of Europe and England. So there's sort of this tiered system. Small banks are small because they're kind of kept small. They can't necessarily provide a $10 billion loan. They're not going to have the reserves to do that. And so they sort of max out at some level. Community banks stay community banks. They never turn into the next big bank anymore. And more often than not, they will get bought by a much larger bank that's a competitor. And we're seeing that in in regular Main Street businesses today with the pandemic, all these big chain stores being allowed to remain open, and yet mom and pop businesses and other small businesses that aren't chains are all being told that they should close. And a lot of them are losing their businesses or getting bought by others. And so that's happening with banks just the same. As far as I I think your question was about individual banks, I'm afraid that uh, small banks Probably won't be around. I think there'll be some of the businesses to go or get bought up, just as other small businesses are. And then with the bigger banks, the whole idea of the World Economic Forum is is an increased public-private partnership between government and private sector. And so they're going to be standing there to support the banks that they don't want to fail, just as we've seen since 2008, the uh, central banks and the U.S. government saying we'll support this airliner, we'll support this automaker, because they don't want the big ones to fail. They don't really care so much about the small ones, so they'll do the same with the banks. So Citibank's not going to go anywhere. J.P. Morgan's not going to go anywhere. You know, they may allow some of them to fail or get bought up, but that's unfortunately where it's at. And then I think the central bank, which is at least a political, but as you mentioned, it's not good for any monopolistic thing to happen. The Joe Biden appointed Janet Yellen to be the new head of the U.S. Treasury, and she used to be the chair on the Fed, and that's a little scary because there there's all this talk of mmt which is modern monetary theory and you get into being able to give people ubi and things like that sort of this force fed economy that american you know we have a consumer economy 70% consumer and we if we don't have money we can't spend money and that's 70% of our gdp and so this idea of mmt is well then just give people money so so they'll spend money But to do that effectively, they need to merge the Fed and the Treasury, and then you're taking an independent organization, which is the Fed, that's not driven by political reasons specifically, and merging them directly with the U.S. government. It's good in the sense that the Fed should have never existed in the first place, in my opinion. The government should have never given some other entity the ability to create money, because that means we're always in debt to them. And if we merge it, it will probably merge the balance sheets and somehow balance that out, and we may not have it tremendous government debt, but it also means that whatever political party is in office is going to kind of control how money gets spent if that moves forward.
0: It seems to me it's more about restructuring and control based on the design that has been decided upon. The economy is not being stimulated by lockdowns and shutting down the businesses and making people go unemployed and homeless. According to healthy market function, this is not how you stimulate an economy at all. So it's more about just restructuring in such a way that it is very centralized and very controlled and surveilled and the ubi is tied to you know whatever the government wants and so on
1: absolutely I agree one of the things that you had mentioned uh, that, that you normally ask I guess on the podcast is with this idea well at least for this time the trend of, of language being used uh, certain kinds of language for the public good being used for other things and um, in this case uh, one of the big words right now is inclusion and I think that one's the most insidious because it encapsulates it's a very wide Net that it casts it covers everything. You got financial inclusion, you got housing inclusion, you got healthcare inclusion, identity inclusion, connectivity, experience inclusion, transportation inclusion. It's uh, it's one of the biggest words, and that's unfortunately tied to the whole Great Reset thing with the World Economic Forum. And you know, as you mentioned with the economy, they're really just structuring it in a certain way to make it controllable. And um, the digital currency, everything would be tracked with a digital currency, and even probably. GM tagged because they they would know where a business is that meant money was spent and things like that so the idea that this fluffy language is being used to make people comfortable the reason that I think inclusion is one of the scariest words is you know of course it sounds like people should be included it sounds like you want to exclude them and something's wrong so why wouldn't you want financial inclusion there are people who don't have bank accounts so why wouldn't you want them to you know there are homeless people why wouldn't you want them to have a place to live and um the the reason that it gets scary is even just the financial aspect, for instance. The government, right at the beginning of the, the initial first, first initial pass at the lockdown, which was in March, mid-March, late March 2020, uh, 20, the, the Banking for All bill was introduced in the U.S. Uh, Senate, I believe. And um, the idea of that bill was everyone that has a social security number gets a bank account at the Fed. Now, I don't think this bill passed because it was really just throwing the idea out there. It was only like a five or six page bill. They're certainly not gonna make a giant change to the currency system with a five-page bill. But this is things legislators do. They, they'll, they'll throw this or that out there and then if it starts to move forward, they'll realize they need to make more detailed plans and they are still moving forward with this sort of thing. But the idea is they were going to give everyone bank account directly with the Federal Reserve. And, and this is a bill people can go read. It's called the Banking for All Act, I believe it was called. Everybody would, they would use that for the, the method to get people stimulus faster was the idea. Instead of using the digital money we already have today, it would be, give them an account at the Fed, they would call it a Fed account or a pass-through account, and then everybody would just be automatically opened this Federal Reserve Bank account, and then they would send a stimulus with digital dollars, which would effectively be CBDC before they were calling it that. And so, you know, that's great. Okay, so people who don't have a bank account, now they have a bank account. I don't know about you, but I've known some of those people who don't have bank accounts. Some of them don't want bank accounts. So not everyone wants to be included for certain reasons. And everything you do with a a debit card, that's already something that's already something Already able to be tracked and stuff, but this goes another level beyond that. So, really, what they want to do with include this inclusion is get everyone connected. So everyone's transactions are always in there. They want to make sure taxes are paid. The government wants to know who has any sizable amount of money and who doesn't. When they move it, they want to know where it came from, where it goes to. They have rules for things like know your customer, which is called KYC, and AML, which is anti-money laundering, CFT, which is countering the finance of terrorism. They just like they did not really. Really crazy about crypto, and they're trying to regulate that. They want everything locked down. They want they want everything pinned down so they know every dollar everyone has all the time and everything that's being done with it. So we can call it inclusion, you know, financial inclusion under this nice term, but it really just means complete. <laughs> Control and surveillance over the banking system.
0: No, you, you know, I went to a there's a series of events. I think it's Women in the World. It's very upscale, very lofty. I went to one of those events a few years ago, and I was amazed how you know they were talking about inclusion in terms of poor people in India who don't have a bank account, and that was exactly the spiel. Like you give them a digital identity and a way to get social security or you know welfare benefits and and that was touted on a high level as such a wonderful thing and I was just sitting there thinking oh my god you, you are so evil you, you people are so evil are you doing it knowingly are you doing it naively I'm thinking more more knowingly but yeah that has been around for a while now as I was listening to you talking about this it's almost like for example in theory there's nothing wrong with say a government controlling that like, people pay taxes that it's all like legit that there's no laundering in theory it is actually not a bad thing at all you would imagine, but of course when it boils down to human nature and the corruption how things work in the real world the chances that Bezos will find a way to not pay taxes, he will find a way anyway, and what's going to happen in reality is that people who are, I don't know, like, maybe somebody's homeless they don't want to have anything to do with any of that they just want to like be about their life and then they can't.
1: Yeah, they are they're not super far along with this yet, but this whole system, you know, this whole idea of a fully connected and digitized system is very data hungry. What they effectively want to do, ultimately, is start getting the data in there, using machine learning and AI to be able to see the patterns. In China, they already have some element of predictive policing. So I don't want them to try to use any more data and AI and machine learning than is necessary because they'll know what you're going to buy before you buy it. And that has implications for not only advertising, but you know AI could find patterns, which it's great that it could find a pattern of the next Unabomber before they bomb someone, you know, but it's not great that they might find the next entrepreneur who's about to launch the biggest thing ever just because they went through transactions of where people went and, and how much money they had and then they stopped them from doing it because it'll threaten some other business model. So, the, the, like you said, it's the, the human corruption aspect that is very concerning when you start including all this data for everything.
0: No kidding, plus b- besides, it kind of defeats the existential arrangement of the world because a part of it, like, well live to be alive, we live for the, in part for uncertainty and exploration the beauty and the feeling of awe and all those things are not, they cannot be described in the language of function and when absolutely everything is described the language of function and thought about as a function then the world becomes ugly very quickly which we can see, and of course then the function is supposed to serve only the top people in the world and probably not the little farmer or, or small business owner because the function is not written to serve them, the function is written for them to be assets and this whole asset management aspect of it is it's ugly, really, it's ugly and unethical. And in this entire arrangement with the great reset, what are people even good for? Because if you think about it, if everything is made by robots, then for now people are training robots because the robots are not good enough. But then if you think about it, if you perceive yourself as a manager of the world or owner of the world, then it boils down to the fact that you don't really need people, like per se, I mean They receive UBI, so maybe you can harvest them for energy. Maybe you can put them to some use. But if they're just an object, if you don't need them to either make things for you, or consume things and buy things that some of your company makes, then you would imagine that the human being is useless, essentially. There's no use for a human being.
1: Yes. What we have on the horizon, we have the rise of a useless class. There are going to be people... And when Andrew Yang ran, um, one of the things he talked about is these crazy idea of taking a coal miner and making them become a programmer. And uh, he had some numbers about the ability to retrain people, that it was only effective something like 10 or 15% of the time. You're not going to be able to take everyone and make them do these new tech jobs in the future and tech is filtering into everything, so everything is going to be some kind of a tech job. I'm sure there'll be menial tech jobs that they can use to keep people busy while they justify. A UBI, United Nations, is Uh, getting volunteers together for trying to build something for real-time censorship on the internet under the guise of information pandemic that they're claiming, that all this bad information supposedly floating around out there. So I'm sure there's going to be, you could take half the population and make them people who are trying to manage content and make sure bad information doesn't get out there on the internet, which is scary.
0: Meaning good Germans, they're they're building an army of good Germans.
1: (laughs) I. Perhaps (laughs) it's, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little scary in certain ways, but you're right. Uh, There's going to be a lot of people who aren't really going to have jobs and there's going to be a lot of people who aren't going to be able to retrain Retrained to do the jobs of tomorrow. And there's if you research it, there's you know huge pushes in various countries to really start getting people on a tech related track at younger and younger ages because they know this is where things are going. And some of the you know, some of the countries like China and South Korea and Japan, they're probably going to do fine in this area. I think in America we're in trouble because our education system is already not great. But uh yeah, there's it's it's kind of a useless class that they don't really need us for. Microsoft has an actual patent on using the energy—I um, believe it's referred to as energy from the human body—for mining cryptocurrency. Oh, that's body
0: activities, yeah, I've seen that patent. It's it's about body activity uh, monitored through an unspecified device. They don't see how, and it's used for mining crypto. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, and and so you know that sort of starts to come into play. What are they going to do with all these people? And you know, it's not fun to get into the dark side of things. That maybe they won't have all these people for certain reasons, but certainly the idea of the Great Reset and everything that we were talking about earlier is I think they want to give people just enough and transportation as a service means you won't own a car, but other everybody would be able to get a ride and housing for all would mean that you're probably not going to live in a single family home anymore, that everyone's probably going to be living in these 20 or 30 story crappy cramped apartments. But for whoever is alive and remaining, so to speak, they know that the system is going to have to do something with the quote-unquote useless people, and it's going to have to do enough with everyone to not only keep them busy, but keep them from sort of rising up against the, the whole system. It is an interesting time that we're living in, for sure. Well,
0: to say the least, and this whole reskilling thing, I mean, to me, the quintessential disagreement that I have with all that, it doesn't take into consideration the beauty of life and free will. Because, like, for instance, from my own experience, I actually did tech jobs and they paid well and it was lovely and at the time I was interested in that like I decided to learn coding and uh, I was doing linguistics before so in my head it was interesting and also I wanted to be proper at that period of time in my life and I did it I did really well I mean, like, I was promoted quickly. I was doing highly technical involved things in coding. But then I got bored with it. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I, I quit it and I never looked back and I wouldn't want to do it again. So if somebody told me right now that I would need to be reskilled, I don't want to. This is not what I want to do. And I have other talents. So not taking into consideration the fact that all human beings are different and everybody is born with their own talent and set of preferences and like their feelings matter. In fact, their feelings matter. And that's just the foundational stone of human existence. Like, it's sacred. It, it matters. And those fuckers, they just keep it as, you know, function. This is, this is
1: not good. A cog in the machine. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I mean, if I needed to go to do a tech job or if I need to go get a tech job for not earning enough otherwise, I don't quite mind yet. Uh, it's not exactly something that I would be crazy about. But the notion of just thinking you can make people do this or that as if they are just a part, like a non-human thing, is frustrating. And uh, gosh, we're in an interesting time because there's a huge battle of centralization versus decentralization. And the the monetary system, the government, uh, and this sort of globalist people, they're all trying to move everything toward increased centralization and centralized control. And yet the internet has been an equalizer in the sense that now you know regular people who nobody knew can literally become famous and become millionaires over the course of months or years for opening a box or dancing silly uh, and and that uh, it's not a fixed pie, but there are people who think things are a fixed pie and that if someone else is getting rich, they must be getting less, and that's kind of a, a disease on its own. <laughs> but we we live in this time. We have the internet, very decentralized thing. We have cryptocurrency making people millionaires right now, another decentralized thing. And while we still have those things, I think people need to leverage them as much as possible to keep things decentralized and make even more things decentralized, um, I- ideally to the point of democracy itself or, or something. Because uh, otherwise, it's just this battle of increased centralization and, the, and those who do have control are going to try to take decentralization away if it makes a power asymmetry.
0: Well, there's a huge power a symmetry obviously in plain sight and to me it boils down to maybe a lofty concept but it's almost like lack of wisdom and benevolence because say if there were a government who genuinely had people's good interest in hearts and who would take into consideration the free will and what people actually want you could say that it's not such a bad thing however it just never happens in real life because people are people in this corruption and we live in real life and under the conditions of how human nature is. I have a question that I talked to a bunch of friends about this and uh, most people noticed that there was a change in their relationships with their usual circles. Like once you start expressing ideas along the lines of not liking the lockdown or not necessarily believing the propaganda that we're getting, then it seems like it polarizes people and some people love you and some people really think you're the devil. So have you experienced something like that, or how how did it work with your relationships?
1: Yes, I, I think most of us have to some extent, and I, I had even started drafting an article about how people are taking sides right now, whether they know it or not. And, uh, you know, in my, in my case, trying to talk about things like the, even the Great Reset uh, that we talked about, that you quickly find who you can talk to and who you can't but then even with expressing concerns about whether whether or not the you know the pandemic is is really that dangerous you kind of start to find which friends really kind of are are going to toe the line more than they are to think freely and openly about things and I don't necessarily know what's what's right and what's true with everything. But my own my own roommate, uh, thankfully, I can talk to him about most of this stuff. He leans pretty far right politically. I do not. Um, but you know, I have other friends that I either just don't talk to them about any of this stuff at all after one or two conversations, or I kind of have to probe around the edges and uh, get their what they think about a certain thing because um, people are going to lose friendships over this, friends and even family members. And it's a dicey time. And ultimately, I think what it's coming down to is who is going to be obedient to what people in white coats and and governments tell them and, and people who aren't. And um, I know which camp I'm in, and I can only hope that more people come around to that side. Well,
0: good for you. And in a normal world uh, with a healthy emotional state of, well, anybody, technically you should be able to discuss anything. So even if the other person doesn't agree with you, it should not be an emotional, dramatic, theatrical move word where if you don't think lockdowns are good, you're a Nazi. I mean, that is just that is psychotic to, I can't even describe how psychotic it is. But, you know, I was actually thinking about it today, how brilliant in an evil way it was to polarize people in the past four years politically, because say now, like I am I'm historically, I have been on the liberal side and now I'm just homeless politically because it's like just, like all of it is ugly. But uh, if I publicly agree with somebody who is a Trump supporter, then everybody in my normal crowd would think that I, I have lost my mind. They wouldn't even think about the issue at, in question. They would not even look at it just because the association in their opinion is wrong. And it only really works for the people who are on the throne right now for the powerful ones because in essence the peasant on the left and the peasant on the right have a lot in common with each other we have very little in common with with whoever they say on the right or on the left in power in television but it became impossible to publicly cite people and i do it anyway but like in terms of impact some time ago it was possible to say okay this so this person maybe they're not exactly like me politically but here's where i think they're making sense and i agree with them and then people would actually listen now it's like no no i mean like if they see that it's a different political association it just gets tossed into the toilet immediately without even looking and it is so insidious and i honestly believe that it's not even coincidental i mean like obviously you know what evil genius wouldn't would not do that so it is it is bad
1: active propaganda you know like i mentioned earlier with with the idea of uh, censoring the internet and they're saying you know the, the the governments and organizations like the world health organization and the u.n they're saying they they they, they start to associate terms with one another intentionally mm-hmm. and that's how it solidifies in people's brains and so they referred to people questioning anything to do about the the seriousness of the the virus or if the vaccine was going to be okay anyone questioning any of that of course you you get lumped in with the right automatically, no matter what your home was before, as I have, and are calling it an infodemic, an information pandemic. And they're talking about, they're literally using terms like people being infected with bad information, with disinformation and misinformation. And I I can't remember, it was on the UN website. There were three or four words that were really heavy adjective charge type words that you would describe a very bad pandemic with, which is probably not what we have. But they were all associating it directly with anyone who believes certain things or uses anything that they would declare as misinformation and disinformation. And so that association is happening. And again, people are, they're being sort of bucketed and grouped, whether they know it or not, with one side or, or the other. And it's um, even even though people are you know there's left and right there's there's also who's kind of on the globalist agenda and who's not and but you're right we have more in common with the people around us next to us than we do with any of them and so it's unfortunate that people fall victim to these sort of logical fallacies and these and these propaganda methods. It is
0: extremely unfortunate and uh, well, on the positive side the way I think about it when I, I when I try to find positive and all that it could be an opportunity for us to. To see through that and to unite. Because if you look at historically how did invaders, even the European settlers, how were they able to conquer the Americas? That was by divide and conquer. They would put one nation against another, or, you know, one leader against another, and they would play people. And if the people in the Americas didn't go for that, then good luck to European settlers. It would have never happened this way. So, it is possible that it's like life gives people as a species opportunity an opportunity to wake up and this is how I look at it like in a way it can get really ugly if people just snooze through that and turn into robots and agree to that but on the other hand it could be a really beautiful chance to finally for many people to wake up and say you know what we don't want any of that we don't want to be divided we don't want to hate the other person just because he's from a different party or whatever and I think the reason the people upstairs are so scared and so deliberate And they throw so much money and effort into this propaganda about misinformation and this and that. I think because they realize that they actually have less power than they pretend to have, and hopefully more people will wake up for real. So, well, on that optimistic note, it was really it was really wonderful to talk to you, and I feel like well, there's so many more things I want to pick your brain about, but like maybe another time. Is there anything that you want to say in conclusion and also where can people find you?
1: Uh, well, right now I'm writing on Medium, uh, dot com. I think I'm going to be moving over to Substack. If I do, I'll either be under my name or a business name called New Objective Media. And of course, I'm on Twitter, either at Justin Hans or possibly at J Hans, depending on the platform. So, that's that for now yeah and and um, everybody needs to try to stay together and and realize who who's with them and who's not and got to be able to be intellectual honesty and and watching out for logical fallacies I think is and uh, finding like-minded people is what's going to get us through this. And I do think something good can come out of it. Cool.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we agree on that. So once again, that was Justin Horns. And it was a great pleasure to talk to you. And and I have to, at the end of this interview, compliment you on your Christmas article. It was absolutely beautiful. The Schwab, you know, Merry Christmas peasants.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. this. This is great. Cool,
0: thank you.